He's dead. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello everybody. And also joining us this week of LostInTheMovies.com and also at LostInTheMovies on Twitter and just one of the uh, biggest Twin Peaks nerds we know, it's Joel <laughs> Baco. Hello. Oh, halfway through that, I realized I should do the Dougie hello. So that might have been a little late, but I started to say hello, and I was like, "Oh, this has to be a Dougie hello." It's funny. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything, but I was doing research for future guests of this podcast, and I was reading something that a possible future guest wrote about something that was only tangentially related to Twin Peaks or to, to uh, David Lynch, rather. And I scrolled down to the comments, and there you were. Just pure happenstance. It wasn't even an article about. I don't know if I'd call that happenstance. It's like a probability almost. (laughs) It's a reasonable expectation that Joel will show up if there are Twin Peaks related things happening. Uh, well, we we super appreciate you coming and joining us, Joel. We are very excited to have like a a very serious uh, Twin Peaks knowledge fount on the uh, show. I think I think we have friends who listen to this podcast, like my friends listen to this podcast, and they're like, "Whoa, you know so much about Twin Peaks." I'm like, I nah. think if you, if you're not that into it, it's like, yes, we do we do research and we know a little bit and we try. But I I very much bow before Joel's collected knowledge about the Twin Peaks universe because I think uh, you put us to shame, which is good. We're so glad to have you on. Well, thank you guys for having me. I mean, I've been loving this this podcast. It's been hard to kind of keep up with all of the podcasts, <laughs> yeah. but I've heard all of your guys' episodes, and I love the fact that you approach it from sort of a cinephile's point of view, which is just really fun, because I think a lot of times people get into Twin Peaks more through TV, which is cool, but it's just not something that I have as much kind of experience with. Like, I really don't watch that much TV, and I've kind of been trying for like five years to catch up with the the prestige shows and then just never quite getting to it so it's kind of fun to hear people approach it more from my wheelhouse which which is more like film history and and uh and that type of approach do you come from a film background as well joel did you like study cinema or anything um i mean i've i've done a little bit of filmmaking um i have a short film on the website and uh, for the most part i would say at least the past 10 years, it's been more not just writing about, cause I do like video essay stuff. I like discussing film, I guess yeah. in various mm-hmm. mediums. That's, that's probably the best way to put it. Well, but great. yeah, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, that was kind of, you know, when I was like seven or so. It was like, Oh, this is my thing now. And then it just kind of stayed my thing. Although lately <laughs> I've, I've fallen off a lot, like my movie going habit. So taken over. In way, yeah. In <laughs> I, I think for a lot of us, movie going is a tougher enterprise these days. I know yeah. it is for me. Um, yeah. So we do need to talk about part 11 soon because, you know, holy. <laughs> but um, but I did want to ask, you know, as a not just a film scholar, but I guess as, as what you might call a Twin Peaks scholar, like how have you been feeling about the return? I mean, it basically by the time it's over, it'll have almost doubled the mm. like the amount of twin peaks we're getting so how do you feel like your perception of of this universe is evolving that's a good question because it is almost as much about kind of being a film fan specifically like a lynch fan as being like a twin peaks fan um i think it, not just is it doubling the amount of twin peaks that exists but i think it's literally doubling the amount of like feature length material that lynch has directed 
So yeah. I've kind of been looking at it from two angles. One is as new Lynch material. And that's kind of what I was most excited about. Just, wow, like Lynch is going to be directing again after, you know, 10 years and a few music videos and, and stuff here and there. And from that angle, it's just been totally thrilling because we're getting, you know, th there's sequences in this which can absolutely stand up with anything he's done. The, the Purple Room stuff, the whole part eight, um, which, by the way, I, I, I don't know if um, your articles, you were mentioning the article that's going to be in... Uh, is it Cinemascope? Cinemascope. I'm still waiting to hear from my editor. He he had kind of like um family stuff come up, and so I've sort of he's fallen off the map. But I am hopeful that soon it will be available I'm on the website. I'm looking forward to that because that episode is like almost just a film in and of itself. Yes, it um, is. And then from the other angle, I think more like the Twin Peaks narrative. How does this fit in? I'm sort of agnostic at that on that at this point. Like it could really go either way for me. Um, nothing yet has sort of confirmed that okay, this is really like necessarily expanding on what we had and nothing is like saying it won't either. So it really is going to depend on what happens in the last two or three hours. Because for me, mm -hmm. the end of Firewalk with me was a more than satisfying end to Twin Peaks, even though it left the Cooper thing unresolved. Mm -hmm. Just looking at Twin Peaks as a story going from the pilot where Lara's body is discovered and then the end of fire walk with me where spirit gets that release. Like that was a complete journey to me. Mm -hmm. So whether or not this just kind of seems a little redundant at the end, or it seems like, Oh no, this added a whole new dimension to that story and kind of completed it in a, in a different way remains to be seen. But I know I'll be happy it exists just because of all the new Lynch material. Yeah. Well, lucky and lucky for you, the Cooper thing is totally resolved now. So right. Exactly. It's over. <laughs> that's, that's good. There's no more Cooper. Um, Actually, um, I mean, there's, okay, so part 11. There's a lot of stuff we need to talk about, but because I'm feeling uh, a little wonky and because we just talked about it, um, there's something I need to discuss, which is that on the message board where I've been talking about the show with a bunch of people, um, a, a solid contingent of maybe like a quarter to a third of this board is convinced that we actually do see Cooper wake up in that last huh. sequence. Which I find utterly baffling. So I wanted to see if anyone else agreed with that. I I don't I didn't see that. I mean, for me, I think Lynch, and we can maybe come back to it when we talk to him about the rest of the episode. But but like, there's something masterful masterful going on in that final scene where Lynch is sort of playing with our reactions to it. And I think he again wants you to think like he wants to make you aware of your desire for Dougie to wake up. And the moment that the Battle of Menti song comes in and the rest of the sound drowns out and you're like completely wrapped attention, you think something important is happening. That doesn't actually translate to any kind of like content or narrative information dictating that Dougie has woken up. I, I don't think Dougie's woken up, but I don't know. Uh, what about you, Joel? I have a question to answer to, I guess, as my answer for that. Okay. Have these people been saying this every single episode so far? <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like I've been hearing that every single episode yeah, so I far. Agree. Like, oh no, this is it. This is the moment. This is it. And then of course we tune in next week and he's still staring off into space. So <laughs> Yes. yes, I didn't see anything particularly different about this one than any of those moments so far. So I okay. think he's still going to be Dougie uh, next week. I just wanted to see if I was insane because uh, <laughs> I, I okay. Oh. So, so they're the problem. Okay, good. Simon, you have just reminded me that I have a question I want to ask Joel about sort of overall Twin Peaks mythology. Um, because Simon and I, neither of us know the answer to this. And I feel like until we know the answer to this, we are, we are not going to be true Twin Peaks nerds, Joel. So... 
Could you explain to me briefly and concisely where it is in the Twin Peaks original run where somebody uses the term uh, Duke Pa? Duke Pa. Where somebody Uh, uses that term in relation to like the universe of the show because I know what the term means, um, but I've never I've never been able to hear it like said in Twin Peaks. Uh, So I don't know. Is there an answer to that? Yes, it's. I think there's two mentions, and they're in episode 27. And it's Um, funny you mention that because. When I found the website, uh, Dugpa, I was kind of like confused. Like, wait, why is a website about Twin Peaks called Dugpa? Because I'd seen it like two or three times and I had no, no memory of that whatsoever. But there's there's this – I think it's both times by Wyndham Earl. Um, he's on the TV um, from like the 1960s, which oh, is like the only scary okay. Wyndham Earl footage in, yeah. in that whole part of the series. And he says – he talks about the Dugpas were ancient sorcerers uh, – who cultivated evil for the sake of evil. And then there's a scene later in that episode where he, uh, Leo's like wiping down sawdust or something. And, and he finds the uh, buzzer that goes with the, the necklace thing. And while he's doing that, Windermill's talking about Doug and going, Oh, you would have liked the Doug Leo. You know, they were like the Cali worshipers of old and all this stuff. And the funny thing is both of those uh, lines are snatched pretty much verbatim from a, an adventure book from the 1920s, which like Harley Payton and Mark Frost and everyone are like, oh, I, I don't know about that book, but I'm sure they're being sincere, but they they obviously copied it from there. So they must have just had like a table full of books just grabbing huh. random passages because it's literally <laughs> like word for word quotes. <laughs> Um, well, well, speaking of slightly benign plagiarism, uh, we should, I also wanted to remember to say something to Joel that, uh, I, I'm sure, I'm sure this already occurred to you, but I wanted to thank Joel that when we did our pilot episode, uh, what feels like a lifetime ago when we did our pilot episode for the launchers, um, we talked about, uh, basically the work that you had done on, uh, Lost in the Movies of, of sort of going through the old Twin Peaks dot. Oh yeah, that's right. Alt TV uh, blog posts. And like compiling them, and we totally used your good work to make it look like we had done lots of research. <laughs> so I thought <laughs> yeah. we should say thank you about that too. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That was a that was quite a while. That was when I was working on the Journey Through Twin Peaks videos, and I kind of like almost as like a side project was just going through all those old boards, and I think it was kind of hard because you would have to. Um, it's like a Google group now for some reason, like somehow all the content migrated there and you'd have to like term search twin peaks and then just hit like the down button for like 10 minutes to get to like 1990. I did that Joel once after, after I figured out there was more of your stuff, it was 15 minutes of holding the down button to get to like the 1990s. It's crazy. So I was very glad you had done all that work. I tried to do it once without, uh, term searching Twin Peaks because I was like, well, I want to see everything that's on the board. And I think after a half hour of like <laughs> doing that, well, you know, doing other stuff, but keeping that face, it was like, okay, I'm in like 1997. Jeez. This is going to happen. <laughs> Podcasting and watching television are basically the only things that I can do for 15 straight minutes. So congratulations, everyone. Yeah. Um, Something was keeping me entertained. And, and I also, I also hope that listeners enjoyed the dramatic reading series from that from those excerpts that I completely abandoned after I think the first or second episode of this podcast. <laughs> Simon and I had such grand plans when we started this podcast. We, we were going to do like a character spotlight every yeah, episode yeah, where we would do, yeah. where we would do like five minutes on Bobby and then five minutes on like Leo. And then that all went away and we were like, let's just be glad that we're getting an episode done every week. Yeah. Seriously. Oh God, yeah. 
Well, I was doing a character series before the show started, and I was like putting all this time into it, and I got up to the top 20, and I was like, okay, the show's almost on. I'm just going to have to pause it and come back. And I think in the time since the first, the, since the premiere, I've done maybe one and a half of those entries. <laughs> it's like just you know yeah. a trickle there oh, a trickle there i had this idea that i was going to write a piece cuz no one's ever actually done this they they i've seen top 20s and top 50s but no one's ever actually ranked every single character in the original run and i thought about doing that and of course now it's impossible <laughs> because you've yeah. got oh, yeah. like a million more characters i've been wondering i'm like should i go back and just add in like the the new characters i don't know do i have to count It'll each woodsman actually... individually it would actually be kind of fun, especially if you actually tried to figure out like how long they're on screen, like who's because I did a little bit of that for this other thing. And it was like kind of shocking sometimes, like the log lady was only in like 15 minutes of Twin Peaks. That sounds about yeah. right. Like the whole series. Well, I mean, it makes sense kind of. But then you're like, oh, wow, she was in it less than like Ernie Niles or someone <laughs> like some of those people, you know, God, Ernie Which Niles puts it in perspective. <laughs> yes, oh, it does. All right, so we really do need to start talking about part 11 yes. because we're going to, this is going to take a long time if we don't start <laughs> soon. Um, and it might even if we do. So um, why don't we just start with properly with the fact that for the first 10 minutes of this episode, I was getting heart palpitations because mm. it's like possibly the most stressful stretch in Twin Peaks history. Or was mm. that just me? No, I definitely found it stressful. I mean, I, I wouldn't. With the exception of the uh, Becky throwing Shelly off of a moving car windshield, um, I, mostly I just found it like I found it as invigorating as I did stressful. I mean, I, I didn't find it I didn't find it like painful the way that Lynch's scenes sometimes can be. I mean, for me, right, the, yeah. the the Richard Horn like torturing his grandmother scene had my heart beating more in that sense than this scene. But I totally know what you mean. It's like the the momentum is just so strong right from the beginning. Like once you get past the opening scene with the little boys and Miriam, which is a strong scene in and of itself. But sort of once you're there, it just picks up and it picks up and it picks up and it just gets crazier and crazier over the next 20 minutes. Um, yeah, how, how did you find it at the beginning, Joel? Yeah, I felt that way, honestly, for the first half hour, up through the zombie kid. Like, even the sort of slower moments were still, like, you were still kind of recovering from before, and then something would just burst. Like, when they're in the diner, all of a sudden a gunshot fires out, and it's horns blaring and it's like i didn't think it really let up until the half hour mark and then i thought the rest of it was much almost like gentler even though you have like two gangsters trying to kill cooper but somehow that whole stretch just seems much calmer but even through all of that i was still recovering from that first half hour so like when the episode ended and the lynch frost thing came up i actually kind of like jumped out of my seat because i was so on edge just from that mm. that first half of the episode yeah, maybe that's a good place to start talking about the episode episode as a whole because it really is bifurcated. We have the yeah. the first, I mean there's quite a lot of stuff that happens in that first half hour, but it's all, you know, more or less within well, I guess there's Twin Peaks and there's and there's South Dakota, but it feels very connected. Um and then the at least, you know, tonally and then the the second half where we get that where we return to the Dougie plotline, much to I'm sure each and every single viewer's delight, um, where which again like has a totally different tone and and we, maybe we should start in roughly that order, um, and to do that I just I feel like one of my possibly my biggest takeaway from this episode is that I'm so happy that Dana Ashbrook has gotten such a spotlight 
because he is just uh he does wonderful wonderful work in this episode uh my my reaction after the sequence where bobby uh sees shelly get up and go out to meet red outside and the the like i think you get two if not three shots of the Mm -hmm. look on dana ashbrook's face i was like all right, fine, Dana Ashbrook. I'll divorce my husband so I can marry you. Like, well, it's fine. It's fine. Well, don't worry about it. We'll make sure. It's like he breaks your heart. Oh, my God. He's so good in this episode. And it's all very subtle. I mean, it's it's funny because I think in the past, uh, Dana Ashbrook was, I think you originally referred to him, Simon, as like the secret sauce of the episodes. But And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he could really handle the kind of more extreme aspects of Lynch's sort of performance uh, like requests from people, right? Dan Ashbrook was always playing it pretty big, pretty broad, pretty over the top. And then here, it's it's quite different. It's quite, um, it's him sort of reacting very silently a lot of the time to other people. It's very calm, but very... Um, evocative. I, I, I think he's great. I think he's nailing it, and I'm so glad that we are getting so much Bobby because I think I think you said this last week too, Simon. He, he it is doing a lot in terms of of putting someone new in the position that we would have expected might have gone to somebody like Cooper. You know, I thought it was really interesting to see those three as a family too because I I think one of the things that has been kind of missing so far, and a lot of people have talked about it, is sort of like the, the the melodrama, but like the kind of the domestic life of like Twin Peaks that you really got so much of in the original series. And it was just really like, they really fit those three as, even though I think, you know, Matt Genomics only like 14 years older than like Amanda Seyfried or something, but you know, they really worked as like a little family unit that was kind of broken. And you have these attachments to the characters from the old show, but you know, you, you also, or at least I find, um, even though she hasn't been on screen that much, Becky is just, such a sort of fascinating, charismatic character. And just seeing that combination of characters made me look forward to, I hope, seeing a lot more character interactions, kind of different people coming together as the series goes on. Because one of the things that I missed in season two of Twin Peaks was the sense in season one that any of these characters could kind of meet up and sparks would fly. You know, and so, so far, I don't think um, season three or the return has done that that much. You sort of have little units. You have Jerry and Ben and Beverly and you have the sheriff's department doing their thing. And, you know, so so seeing characters kind of come together for the first time after seeing them separately is really like a nice small little joy amidst all of the tension and excitement and everything else. So I hope we get more of that. The moment that the diner sequence opens, uh, and, and Olivia was out of town, so I was watching this episode by myself, and you cut to the diner sequence, and you see Bobby on the other side of the table, and you can tell that she- Shelly is on the close side of the table. I, I quite literally did the, like, tennis fist pump of, like, yes! Like, I, by myself, I'm, like, so excited to see these two together. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily sort of attached to... Um, I'm not, like, a, a shipper in the sense that I was expecting that they were going to be sort of together or something. Um... But I think the the reaction to that scene um, pointed out something to me, which is I think Lynch and Frost sort of overall in the whole shape of the return have managed to do something so interesting 
um, in terms of taking the kind of like initial seconds that you might get in any other reboot where, you know, like the X-Files opens or whatever, a new X-Files, and automatically you have two characters together right away. And then you're just into that new space where you have to come up with a story that makes sense for them to do. And, and you brush past that idea that they're just there. We're just, we, everybody's already together in the same place and we're just past that. Um, and so your joy sort of goes away immediately. Whereas Lynch and Frost are just taking such pains to kind of dole that out in such small drops that when you get it, it means so much more. And that happens throughout this episode. We get other examples towards the end of the episode of something similar. But like that moment of Shelley and Bobby together is so wonderful. And I don't think it would have meant the same thing if we had just gotten it in like the first two episodes, you know? You know what else? I, I just realized, like, I totally agree with that, by the way. It's it making me think of all these reboots that have been coming out lately where, you know, it's like, you you front load it like that one of the things that i just noticed thinking about it was um uh, amanda seafried the becky she does a little gesture and as you were just saying that it occurred to me it's like straight out of bobby like when when shelly says um you know we're, we're your parents but you know we know you're married and you have you know your own life and she kind of does this little like weird like shrug and 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 kind of no um What's the word I'm looking for? She just does this kind of little gesture that reminds me so much of Bobby when um, Hank, when they're in the diner together and Hank says, Hank kind of shrugs to him and he shrugs back and then he remembers he saw Hank outside the uh, outside oh, right. of Leo's house. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking about? Sorry, this is like very rambling, but I'm, tr I'm trying to like <laughs> sort of articulate it. But she does this thing. It just occurred to me. It's like, that's like straight out of Bobby. So I just, I love how it's like, you can see this next generation of characters kind of reflecting the older ones. And people have actually pointed that out with Audrey and Richard in, in kind of weird ways too. It, it didn't even occur to me that, um, you know, when Becky's going on this tear and she just like is impulsively um, leaving Stephen and shooting things. I think these are all very Bobby things to do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, that's true. Hey, I hadn't really yeah. thought about that. Yeah, I that hadn't makes, at all. That makes sense. Um, I mean, I think, like, and I've seen some people write about this already in these scenes, but uh, there is, um, to just extend what Joel was saying there, there is, like, a pretty common thread in this episode where you have the, the kind of generational um, sets reflecting mm -hmm. each other. Because first you have Becky and Shelley, uh, which is sort of um, emphasized by the moment when Shelley sees Red and she gets up and goes out to kiss Red and and Red is so clearly figured as like as Olivier called him like old Bobby like old young Bobby like you know the the way he dresses the way he acts Red is so clearly like the character of Bobby from thirty years ago but as an older guy um, and so this idea that Shelley is sort of still you know I I don't I think it's a bit simplistic to just say making the same mistakes because clearly Bobby wasn't a mistake I mean but it, but this idea of like she's sort of maybe doing the same kind of patterns um, while at the same time trying to convince her daughter to maybe not make those same choices which is interesting um, and then right after that we're out in the street and we have these amazing the amazing sequence where Bobby after the you realize that the little boy is shot out of the window and Bobby looks down at one point and sees the little boy like standing in front of the van in this standoffish way with the weird look on his face and then the camera pans over and you see the father standing exactly the same way and looking exactly the same way I mean and wearing so a camo jacket as well Yes, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of this stuff that happens throughout the episode, this kind of like reflection back and forth across different ages. Um, and since we're at that car, I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, what the fuck is up with the melting zombie kid? <laughs> Olivier 
posited, and I have no idea if this is a right or not, but he was like, is that a reference to The Walking Dead? Like, if the show is just sort of making this this almost, like, catalog gesture towards gesturing to other prestige television shows, like, is that a Walking Dead thing? And I was like, maybe? I, I have no idea. I mean, it was hilarious. Like, I, watching it the second and third time, like, it makes me cry with laughter, actually. <laughs> really? But, um, oh, yes, yeah, if you go back too, and rewatch it, it's really funny. <laughs> it's it's much funnier the second time around. The first time, it was just scary. Second time, it's hilarious. Really? Well, the sounds that the lady makes, that's what does it for me. Exactly. Her squeaks, her, like, just... Ah, ah, like over <laughs> and over. It just doesn't stop. It's so funny. And I actually watched the last episode at my parents' house. Um, and they kind of watched a little bit. I was like, you know, you you don't have to, to stick around because I don't know if this is your cup of tea. <laughs> my mom made it to Miriam. Or actually, no, she, she closed her eyes and then she watched the South Dakota scene and she mm-hmm. kind of left when they found Ruth Davenport's headless body. Yeah. My dad made it all the way to the zombie kid and then he was just like, Ah, ah, he just like had to like leave the room. Like it was too much. Um, by the way, it's since, just like a sustained craziness. Since we mentioned Olivier, Olivier, if you're listening, I'm going to gently urge you that you no longer let Kate watch episodes that feature Bobby by herself. Cause clearly she gets some ideas. Well, it sounded like when we had Jessica on the other day, it sounds like I have some competition from Jessica. Now That's too. true. Yeah. Bobby's working his way back into the ladies' hearts. Um, he is. He if, is. If he ever, if he ever left, uh, who knows? But um, what was I going to say? Oh, I, I read a really funny uh, assessment of the woman in the car screaming that is is truly genius. Somebody was uh, somebody implied that if you basically listen to her dialogue that she's screaming at Bobby, that all of it could be coming out of the mouths of like angry Twin Peaks fans that aren't happy with the way the show is going. Like, what are we doing here? We ha- we don't have that much time left. What is happening? <laughs> I was like, that that is pretty genius. That is that, is pretty great. That had not occurred to me. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so no one has any ideas about Melting Zombie Boy. I, I saw a fan theory that was like the kid had, uh, you know, ingested one of these b- bugs that we saw in part eight that may or may not hold lore or whatever. That seems absolutely tangential at best to me. I don't see how you can make that kind of assessment. But that's the only theory that I had seen about it. I'd just like to think that when they wrote the script, they were like, there's a sick kid in the car and he like, or she throws up. And then that was how David Lynch was just like, that's how he realized it. It's, <laughs> it's like, like David Lynch has never seen anyone throw up before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like the Bluths trying to trying to make a chicken cluck. Uh, oh, I, yes, I don't know what to make of a zombie kid, but I thought it was great. I mean, that's all I can say. It was, it was the perfect ending to this amazing half an hour long arc through the mm-hmm. whole thing. Um, the, another yeah. thing about this whole sequence that I find fascinating is that like Twin Peaks is going to hell. Like there's just like stuff popping off left and right. Uh, yeah. And meanwhile, you mean, like, the, you mean the town of Twin Peaks? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, like Hawk and the sheriff are just like kicking it at the station, <laughs> just just doing their thing. Um, which, uh, like, I, I have to imagine that if you're invested in like the lore of Twin Peaks, this had to have been a fascinating episode because the the sequence of Hawk and the sheriff talking over this like living map thing um, is felt very much it was like the most old schooly like twin peaks lore scene that i can recall us getting so far 
I'm not one of the ones who's like, I, I'm not great at talking about the lore necessarily. I just enjoy it when it shows up and I love yeah. it. Um, I think for me, this scene was great. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily stand out as maybe the most exciting scene in the whole episode because there's so many other things going on. But um, I, for me, I just, I really enjoy having the new Sheriff Truman, for example, be exist very much in the mode of, of both the old Sheriff Truman, but also Cooper in the sense of like, you know, a law enforcement guy that is not wedded to kind of like Western ideas of sort of like strict rationality or whatever. Like Truman is very much open to just sort of whatever Hawk has to say. Like he just takes everything in stride. He's really open. I, I still love that dynamic very much. Um, I'm so glad that, you know, Michael Horace has so much to do. I think he's great. I just like the fact that uh, like it is sort of an old school late season two lore scene. But it's so tied into the show's iconography, whereas sometimes I think, you know, like we were talking about Dugpas at the beginning, sometimes um, season two would just sort of be like... And here's some new junk. Yeah, like they throw something from like Theosophy into the pot, and it could be kind of cool, but you miss that like connection to the core of Twin Peaks. So I like the fact that they're looking at this map, and it's the two mountains, and it's the corn, and it's all kind of done in this cool visual style so it was sort of the best of both worlds to me like it was it was lore lorry stuff but also core twin peaks stuff Mm -hmm. yeah i agree and it's also a nice um as much as i was sort of mocking them for you know holding up in the station while everything happens uh at least the dispatch lady has an excuse Uh, it's it's a nice breather for that first half hour because everything else is so just intense Exactly. I also really enjoy, and I have to admit, I don't know this character's name, but I also really enjoy that we got so much of the other deputy this this week. The two scenes with the deputy just sort of popping up randomly. <laughs> you want to see Between... my car? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to see my car? And by the time we got to that moment, when the when the door knocks on the sh- on the room that Sheriff Truman and. Uh, and Hawker in, I swear, I thought, like, this is going to be somebody coming to, like, tell them the crazy stuff is happening and they need to get out there and there's horrible things. And no, it's just this guy being like, <laughs> do you want to see my car? Um, and then even before that, the, the sequence with Bobby, where he's like, I was at Big Ed's gas farm, which matters that we get a nice mention of Big Ed's gas farm. Hopefully we'll actually see Big Ed soon. But um, that we get that mentioned. And then the guy's like, and you know what? I heard gunshots. <laughs> such a great... That character, I thought, was, again, like, one of these really... Um, wonderful touches that happen I think throughout this episode like this is the other thing we haven't talked about overall with this whole episode yet is there's the kind of bifurcation where you have the really intense stuff in the first half and the the humor like or sorry the the more relaxed kind of gentler pace in the second half but the other thing that is so consistent in this episode and it's kind of remarkable for an episode that has so much intense stuff in it is just how funny it is like I probably laughed more in this episode I think consistently than I maybe have in any other ones with the possible exception of Wally Brando because I think I laughed through the whole Wally Brando thing but here it's just like it's so consistently funny it's like back and forth and I we can get into more examples but anyway well what were you specifically thinking of what like maybe since we're sticking to the first half right now you obviously um you seem to find dying children funny but what else uh, what else did you find funny <laughs> what else is funny um the the one well okay well let's talk we haven't talked about it yet so we can talk about the uh, South Dakota the Buckhorn South Dakota yeah yeah, yeah let's do that um, there are a couple of amazing bits in that. Uh, and so the first one for me, the one that I found myself laughing at quite hard is we, we have the shot where they are, they're pulling oh, up in front I of the see house. Where this is going. Yeah. You see where it's going. Right. And the, and they, they get out and, and Cole um, is walking into the, into the area in front of the house and possibly kind of making contact with this 
zone thing and and the and the sequence is quite unsettling right i mean we're still in the space of of like the terror of basically what's been going on with becky and uh all these shots of poor bill hastings in the car looking very upset and very fragile uh and then the zone stuff starts building up and you get lynch's trademark amazing sound work and the image is sort of doing this kind of the shaky superimposition stuff and you're really very tense and then and and lynch starts at cole starts reaching up towards the zone and then we cut back to the original establishing shot which is a funny establishing shot because it's too far away really for what would be like a classical establishing shot it's quite far away it's up and so you see every major character and it is such a funny tableau with these people sort of standing around diane smoking and then in the distance you have david lynch waving his arms up in the sky and and it is so funny like it is just a perfect visual gag and and the best thing about it is that it doesn't undo the kind of um general affect of the scene right i mean as soon as that's over you're back into it with with uh lynch and the sort of zone thing and it's quite unsettling again you know it doesn't it doesn't make it not scary, but they're st- it's still funny at the same time. I don't know. You know, what's what I find really... I mean, yes, it is a very funny sequence. What I find fascinating about sort of the way they're, you know, expanding the stuff with the zone and the woodsman and, you know, this these coordinates, and we get a new set of coordinates this week also, um, is that, you know, I keep reading all these fan theories and, you know, some of them have been coming true. Some of them seem like total bollocks. Um and yet, even for all the stuff that people have guessed that's come true, I don't feel like I'm any closer to really piecing together everything that's happening. And that's really quite a trick. Specifically with the South Dakota stuff, you mean? Well, I, I, I just mean, like, I don't know, the way people are, are you know, like, when we when we had part eight and people were sort of right. figuring out, oh, okay, this aligns with that. And yeah, like, oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I don't see the big picture I, yet at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like we're we're getting a lot more pieces of the puzzle sort of scattered about, but I still don't know what picture it's forming, and it's it's a it's kind of a rare thrill to get. What do you guys think of uh, has Have you warmed up at all to Tammy, or do you still feel kind of like it's not working for you? Because I thought I'm she kind was kind of, of funny in Tammy. this episode intentionally or not i don't know but I, she, she made me laugh a few times like when they get there and they're just like okay you know watch us or something or, and she kind of just like slinks around with the gun like she's in like a video game or something it's just like <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> i i kind of am warming to tammy in the context of that ensemble yeah good point like point, I, I don't yeah. think her acting is getting any better i don't think like the writing for her character is like any more suited to her style of acting but um, I do like her as part of the Albert, Diane, um, Cole situation, whatever the hell it is. Like it's she because she just like she exudes such like she is basically like a like a special effect that someone left in and then never removed or like just, or like an extra who wandered on set and then got lines to do like it's she just does not fit but it's but she's been but she just hangs around and it has like this weird effect that kind of works for me yeah i'm not sure if i'm warming up to her so much as just sort of becoming neutral about it i think is maybe the better way to put it like i i sort of agree with simon it's like i i think increasingly as soon as you stop to think about it you just realize that like that character really doesn't need to exist she contributes nothing she contributes she very much feels like a character that was invented so that Lynch could give a part to Christabel. Like, for example, in that South Dakota scene, we have her 
walking up to the car to ask Bill Hastings the question, is this where the zone is? And then walking back and delivering that information to Cole. And then, as you pointed out, Joel, she, she uh, whatever they say, like, um, watch our back or whatever, and she stands in front of a transparent fence with a gun and, quote, watches their back. And it's well, because like... you need someone who's going to be able to be there to shoot the zone, right? Like, obviously. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, how's your feeling about her, uh, Joel, generally? Are you still kind of like question mark about yeah, her? Yeah, I, I think I'm sort of where Simon's at. It's like she works in the I've, – I've kind of accepted that she's just sort of this cartoon character who's part of that little mini ensemble. And I think it was mm-hmm. weird at first because I read that book and she's like a totally different character in the, in the secret oh. history. Like uh, she's annotating it. And it just is not – I would never have in a million years envisioned the character on the show from reading that. So that kind of threw me. The fact that she was like the only woman on the investigation for a while kind of threw me. And it was like once like Diane came in and they kind of brought this new Buckhorn guy, he's almost kind of becoming like the fifth you know, the, the fifth yeah. presence, sort of the straight man of the crew, I guess. Um, like now it works for me much better just to sort of uh, – Oh, okay. This is who she is. She's just this goof, goofy kind of one note character who complements the the yeah. color, you know. I am. Um, yeah. I have to say, I really, really like what they have Albert do in these scenes. Where, like, if you think about his relationship to the supernatural stuff mm-hmm. in the original run, it was a lot more, you know, oh, this is hogwash, you know, skeptical, etc. That kind of melted over the course of the two seasons. And here it's like he doesn't really engage with the supernatural stuff, but he, he clearly acknowledges like, okay, this is happening. But he kind of he just lets other people handle it. Like he's like, okay, Cole, you're the guy who's into this stuff. You can wander into the into the zone, and then when it's when it gets a little bit scary, I'll just like pull you out. He, it it feels like Albert still is very much tied to the material world and doesn't want to engage with that stuff, but he is willing to accept that okay, it's at least real, which feels like very very apropos. I literally, as you were talking there, Simon, I just found myself thinking, I wonder when Albert and Constance are going to get to go on another date. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They've clearly wormed their way into my hearts, I guess. Yeah. The, um, maybe the, the last thing that I wanted to mention, I mean, we'll, I'm sure something will come up also about this first half, but last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, Hey, shout out to Alicia Witt. Yes. And that like, that like 15 second wordless cameo she puts in as Gersten Hayward. Um, I will again laugh if that is the only time we see her. <laughs> Did you guys realize that was her when you were watching it the first time? Yes, I, but only I because did, yeah. I know her from other stuff. No, I, I recognized her uh, right away. But I, I also, I was keeping my eye out for her because I was expecting her uh. to turn up. But um, yeah, so I, I knew it was her. But I, I am, this will be very interesting to see where this goes. I, I think Simon is right. This could be the only time we get a Hayward and I kind of, another yeah. Hayward and I kind of hope it isn't, and, but maybe. And you know what? I'm still semi-convinced Monica Bellucci is Donna. Don't, I'm just, I, I, I said it long ago and we still have not gotten Monica Bellucci. I keep forgetting that she's know she's turning up. I know. Everyone does, <laughs> but I haven't because she's Donna. That would be so, an interesting you know, twist. She's been in Italy or France. Yeah. Where's Monica Bellucci well, from? Well, she, she's about to leave at the end of season two. She's like, I'm going off to see the world and all that. Yeah, you know, there you go. That's, that explains it. 
anyway, um, so yeah, let's talk about the adventures of Dougie. Um, I just love the way that for several episodes now, like Kate, you were talking before about how it's back to square one. People are trying to kill Dougie and the way that this episode decides to deal with like the mounting tension of the Mitchum brothers and their attempt on their would be attempt on Dougie's life is hilarious and uh, totally unique. I mean, first of all, I just want to give a shout out to, uh, to Belushi who is really, really good and funny and smart in this episode in terms of, um, I mean, obviously we can credit Lynch a lot for, you know, specific directorial choices, but um, this scenes like the one where they're eating breakfast and, um, and I've said before that he and Nepper make a great sort of pair. And that's even more true here. They're eating breakfast and Belushi is so anxious to kill Dougie. He's, he hates him so much He's that he literally cannot, he can barely function. He's so excited to kill him, which is like, how many, how many like Tarantino movies and ripoffs have we seen that involve like wacky hitmen that like, I didn't think there were any angles left for wacky hitmen scenes. And yet here we are. The thing that makes me laugh about that scene, having seen it now a couple of times, is the way that it opens with it, which is Candy, I think it's Candy, one of them, turning up at the edge of the table there to say to the other brother, he's just coming out of the bathroom now. And then you hear you hear the door, and I'm like, what? Like, how? A, why is that information that needs to be delivered? Because the door is clearly, like, five feet off camera. And then how does she know that he's coming out of the I don't know. That kind of stuff made me laugh uh, very hard. Um, no, that sequence was great. I I think as you as maybe you were you were kind of hinting at there, Simon. I think there's some really interesting stuff here going on with this idea that um, yeah, we're sort of supposed to get very clearly in this first scene with the Mitchum brothers that they're definitely going to kill Dougie. That Dougie's in danger. All of this kind of stuff. Um, but I think I, I think it, I think you wrote about this Joel in your uh, blog post about the episode maybe. But this idea that it's very clear early on to the audience that like we're not really in that space of sort of being stressed about whether Dougie is going to die like that the episode very quickly gets over that and we seem to be much more in the space of like we're pretty sure that Dougie's going to be fine which is which is a very a very different kind of um thing when you compare it to the first half of the episode where it very much does feel like sort of anybody could be shot or killed or crazy stuff could happen at any moment but then with Dougie it's like we can kind of take this breather and just sort of be like, we know he's going to be okay, which I find really gratifying because honestly, I really didn't want another scenario in which we sort of had to be genuinely worried if like somebody was going to show up and try to kill Dougie and it was going to be this whole thing. I found this much more gratifying actually, this scenario. Yeah. I really, I, I don't know. I mean, I know you guys have kind of gone back and forth on it. I really am liking, but especially like respecting the Dougie stuff, which I, I guess that's a weird way to put it, but it just feels like, uh, no matter how else, how anything else in the series kind of turns out or doesn't turn out, this this storyline, this material is just so. It's such like a small gem. It's so perfectly realized. Like they've got a conceit and they just stick to it so well in like increasingly you know humorous and clever ways. But it's very simple. It's and it's so ridiculous too, and yet. I feel like it works for me because there's, they invest in it so thoroughly and they just commit, I guess they commit to it is what I'm trying to say. Um, I, I just, I don't know. It, it, it's so sad. It's, it's weirdly 
perversely satisfying to me in some way. Well, and I think it's it's doubly satisfying because it's such um it's a million years removed from the tone of so much of the rest of the show, which there has been a lot of, you know, nasty um violent material involving cruel people. Um, that I think that there that gives this second half like extra satisfaction, the fact that, you know, the Mitchum brothers, who, you know, admittedly they, they have sort of throughout been pretty sort of wacky character wacky hitman characters. Um, the way it just completely defangs them, even before they get to um, you know, Cooper in the box in the desert, which is something else we should talk about. Um, you know, where Belushi is just like just like losing it and he's talking about oh your cut is healed let me show you and they're just they're basically like they're 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 very childlike in that sequence and um it's sort of it's it's a breath of fresh air to see like because you know most of the time like every other scene we've gotten really with the criminal element in this in this show in the return has been of people being uh you know really vicious mean nasty threatening uh sinister and so to, to have a sort of this reversal is like, it really is quite a, a refreshing thing. It's a safe space within Twin Peaks. The whole, all of the Vegas stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is funny because you wouldn't, I don't think anybody would have guessed that that is like where the heart of like the good feelings of Twin Peaks was going to go in season three is uh, Vegas. Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and, and we could maybe talk about some of the like Las Vegas iconography stuff that comes up here because it's quite funny. But I, I do think there's almost an idea here that like, you can almost read that sequence in the latter half as like, it's as if Dougie sort of like the this sort of goodness of Dougie kind of like spreads outward and like infects the characters around him almost like it's it kind of ends up um encapsulating the Mitchum brothers because it's like you can remember back sort of three or four episodes when the Mitchum brothers are like having somebody beat the shit out of like the Brett Gelman character right like it's like these are these are not good characters like we're supposed to I think sort of remember that but then we quickly forget it in this episode and they become just sort of part of this like Dougie universe where they're so excited and they're goofy and they're buying like they're, they want to celebrate with him and um you, you know like it, it very much changes the whole attitude about them in a very interesting way. Yeah, um, since we've sort of mentioned her once or twice already, um, I have to mention again that Amy Shields is like, <laughs> she's my f hero, man. She's so good. I don't know, like, I've never seen her before. I, she's one of the, f like, few, like, new newish faces who I think actually is, like, a reasonably, uh, you know, seasoned actress. But man, I'm going to be looking out for her and other stuff because she's so hilarious in just, I don't know what it is about her dead eyed face and then her deadpan responses that it, that just gets me so much, but they get me every time. Um, also paired with like Jim Belushi trying to like snap to get her attention. Like the responses from both the Mitchum brothers as a, as a trio, they work very well together. Yeah, I think it was actually mentioned on on Twitter um, that somebody mentioned this to us, and I wanted to mention this last week. But I also find like the 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 relationship between the Mitchum brothers and Candy is really interesting. Like they, it's not like a typical mobster like you know sex workers or stripper or whatever relationship at all. They're not like it's not like a straightforward thing where they're just domineering and. Like yes, they are telling her what to do, but it's not it's not as um sort of straightforward as it would be on something like The Sopranos, for instance. Like 
they do seem to have some sense for her well-being, at least in, like, the previous episode. And, like, they have such patience for... Like, I realize that they're they're yeah. impatient in the moment, but they're still keeping her around, even though she's, you know, almost Dougie levels of catatonia, which I just find so interesting. That's very true. I also find it... There is just sort of a funny joke in there, like the idea that if a casino owner or whatever just wants to hire anybody to do like basic chores or jobs, they have to hire beautiful women and put them in these insane outfits. Like that that's the only way that you can have just sort of an employee doing anything for you if you run a casino like that. I, um, I also sort yeah. of enjoy, I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but that of the, the three showgirls, like... The one that's always on Amy Shields' right looks a lot like Amy Shields, but then the one, the third one doesn't look like either of them, which I just, I, I don't know, I, I don't know why I find that detail so funny, but I haven't seen anyone else notice that either. Maybe it's just me. Um, uh, Joel, did you want to say something about the Amy Shields character? I mean, you guys are pretty much reading my mind. Like, I just agree with everything you're saying. I just thought the, the shots at the end where both the three shot of the three girls kind of hovering over the booth and then just the close-ups of Amy Shields just like so good like just so so good like it just gets that character it feels like one of the most successful elements I think of of this Twin Peaks I think it's definitely a breakout role for her I'd also say she's a prolific retweeter so if you tag her in this podcast she will probably retweet it. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh good, good to know. Very uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I, I like the idea that she's going to get more work off of this. Oh, who are you in Twin Peaks? Oh, I was the dead-eyed casino dancer who didn't <laughs> talk when she was asking. And yet everybody will know who she's talking about. That's yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, oh, just totally. Like, yeah. Well, and we should also mention too, Simon, she um, is, I think, a little known in the Twin Peaks community because she did, I think, at least like three of the oh. voices of female characters for That's the right. yeah. audiobook of The Secret History. Um, She's but anyway, Irish, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. Oh, really? So. Interesting. Huh. I think I saw that on the um, TV or something. Yeah, I just, I, I just try to imagine, like, imagine she had no connection to Lynch and her agent read her the, the description of the role to try to sell her on, on auditioning. <laughs> anyway it's it's an amusing thought to me um and and actually i think it's a testament to how successful that character is and that performance is that i've seen several people hypothesize that um either either or um the casino girls the showgirls are emissaries from the from the from the white lodge um who are trying to shepherd dougie somehow which i don't buy just for the record but i'm throwing it out there um, I've also seen people hypothesize that or and uh, Candy is actually the Earth manifestation of Lodge Laura, which I don't think makes any sense, but I do think it's a hilarious idea. I heard that this morning or something, I think, on, on a forum. The same. Yeah, like I get why people are thinking it in the sense that she's got that the sort of a strong presence and she is like weirdly like the mirror image of Dougie, which really makes me yeah. hope they haven't interaction at some point um but i feel like my main thing was like well lynch is never gonna have a laura that's not played by cheryl lee you know whenever yeah. she comes back into it somehow like the actress will be key to that my, my main thing is like i can kind of square some of the things with laura and i can even square like her hunting a fly obsessively like that kind of <laughs> seems like an that seems like a weirdly laura-ish thing to do um, but I can't square like the whole thing, the whole gag with the smacking Robert Nepper and then freaking out about it. Like, I don't really see why they would need 
like a, a, yeah. a Laura corollary character to do that. Do they actually um, have like but I did, arguments but I did find to it back it up? Like, is there like a list of like here's all the things, or is it just like, oh no, she's Laura? No, I think I, I haven't seen any strong yeah. arguments anyway. It, it, it seems to me that some of that is maybe like a reaction to this idea that again people might just be sort of generally mystified as to like why so much narrative weight is being given to this character yeah, who yeah. who probably won't ever really play much of a like kind of pivotal role in terms of sort of narrative development but is just such a kind of like fabulous character and is so wonderful and like inexplicable um i don't know i think just as like a shout out i there, there was like a, a discussion that was happening on uh, Twitter that I don't even remember the names of who was all involved, but there was some very hot takes being thrown out about like Lynch writing stereotypes of women and and that this being sort of part of the overall quote misogyny of the show. And, you know, it's like and, and very smart, uh, eloquent people were writing back saying, I'm not sure you're actually watching the show and like looking at the characters that are actually in the show. And I I just like I think that's totally true. Again, like you look at a character like Candy, like you know, they don't, she doesn't need to have like a, a ton of kind of uh, scenes and, and written dialogue and all of this stuff to create such a wonderful character. Like she's so fascinating. She's so unusual. And then even the character of, um, of Becky, like I was thinking about it earlier, Becky is this character that we've seen, I think three times. And every time we see her, she is at these sort of huge extremes of the kind of emotional scale, right? The first time we see her, she's um, ecstatic, like on, on sort of drugged out. The second time she's in this abject space. And then the most recent time, like furious. And, you know, this idea that like, again, her character does have some connection to, I suppose, the Laura Palmer character in this sense. But like this idea that, that she's not a simple character in terms of like the role that she's playing in this really bad relationship she's in, right? I mean, this is, she's defending Steven. She wants to leave him. She wants to stay with him she hates him he's a good guy like you know she's she's this is a complicated character a complicated role like i don't know this is just my thing that i say every week but like there is so much more going on here than just women or stereotypes well and i would say on like a level of representation like how often and i'm gonna just i'm gonna use the the term because i think we can sort of apply it on like an objective like symmetrical societal level like how often do you get to see like a beautiful like a, a beautiful woman like amy shields like do basically like absurdist comedy on your television, yeah. like instead, you know, not playing like, you know, the hairy domestic housewife or whatever, or like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's really not the sort of role you would associate with that sort of, with that sort of performer in as much as it's the sort of role you see ever. Um, but yeah, I think this, this notion that, that he's stocking up the show with stereotypes or anything like that is uh, totally, totally wrong. Uh, okay, what else do we have to talk about? Um, we have to talk about um, pie, I think. I think we have to talk about pie. Wait, before we before we go to the pie, can I just get this one thing on the table? Because yeah, this yeah. It, it made me laugh even harder the second time around. But it's, again, this like Las Vegas kind of stuff where, uh, well, I guess we could talk about pie and then talk about this. It's all part of the same thing. But the sequence where Bushnell brings Dougie down to the uh, lobby... Dougie gets distracted by the um, the red room sort of sequence, goes over, buys something. We don't know what it is yet, but he comes back with a box. And he gets into the limo. And, you know, we're happy to see this old limo driver that's driven Dougie around before. And the scene seems very nice. And then that music comes on. The Sean Colvin cover of the Las Vegas song. And at fir- the first time you watch it, you're like, this is just very weird. Like, it just, musically, it doesn't really fit with what the show is doing. It's basically the sonic equivalent of the um, kind of, like, rap. The, the really bad like hip hop music that played mm-hmm. over the poor woman that is killed earlier in the season um, like those sorts of things but then rewatching it the second time it's somehow even funnier because 
the music is sort of supposed to evoke, you know, this idea, like, this is somebody's experience of Las Vegas, like, this is, you know, and then you think, who is this music supposed to be for? Like, is this supposed to be, like, a joke, a joke about Dougie's complete lack of, like, ability to sort of be experiencing this? Like, this isn't, like, Dougie has a great drive down the Sunset Strip in Las Vegas, you know, like, it just makes no sense, but it's hilarious. I don't know. I like, um, I like other- to think that they demoed this scene with, like, First, they tried the Elvis version of Evil Las Vegas. Then they tried the Dead Kennedys version. And they're like, you know, you know what we need? We need the Sean Colvin version. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. And then you, you add to that the fact that um, those sequences where Dougie is driving, you get shots sort of both out the front of the, the front direction of driving and backwards, like of the strip. And it's comparatively, like, it's much lower grade uh, digital video that Lynch is shooting with. And it's sort of inexplicable as to why. It's like the frame rate is. Um, higher or he's dropping frames or something and the uh light areas of the image are really dramatically overexposed and it just sort of makes the whole thing look crappier which is really interesting when it's maybe supposed to be this kind of spectacular moment of somebody driving down the strip and you have this very silly song playing kind of crappy dv footage it's a very weird choice i mean i love all of it i'm not i I think it's really interesting i'm just not sure i exactly understand why but it's great Uh, maybe he just wanted to avoid lending vegas like any sense of spectacle Like, See, yeah. that's, and I, that's and, interesting, though. I actually thought that was one of the first times it had any, because, like, up till now, it's been <laughs> so kind of, uh, like, just... Drab. Yeah, drab. That's a good word for it. Like, even the casino stuff, the Silver Mustang, it's, like, very drab. And that was, like, you know, it was it was definitely, like, had a feel of, like, early 2000s, like, music video or something. But, like, it kind of, I don't know, it kind of, like, worked for me. It was, like, this nice kind of, like, mellow vibe and, like, oh, look at the the thing. And then it just stops abruptly and you're in the desert and they're, like, waiting to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, it, it, it had that kind of, that thing Lynch does, like, he did it with Blue Velvet sometimes where it's, like, okay, this is super corny and obvious, but yet something's kind of charming about it. I don't know. Can't put Oh, totally. Yeah, it. for sure. <laughs> The um and something that Kate you pointed out to me and I've seen other people mention as well, there's a whole lot of seven going on in these in this sequence. I mean, with the the overhead shots of this road and then of oh, course the, mov- the movies the movie yeah seven, yeah, yeah, yeah the okay. movie seven like yeah um I mean with obviously Cooper holding this box and we don't know what's I mean we we quickly discover it, it sort of ruins the the central concept of. Of that seven sequence because you know there's no suspense at all about what's in the box really um although if it although there is a missing head in this episode so maybe yeah, there is the, that would have been that, that was what uh that's what the dream was about the dream was that it's a thousand to one shot that he's got major briggs's head in that box <laughs> No, probably not. What's going to happen? Um, yeah, it was interesting. Like again, re- rewatching it with a kind of seven sequence in mind. And if people don't, if podcast listeners don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the David Fincher film Seven, which is from like the late '90s. I'm going to forget what year it's from, but anyway, a very famous sequence at the end. And um, the it's interesting though because in Seven, it's as Olivier reminded me, it's a lot of um, like aerial helicopter shots where you see the, this vehicle driving through this sort of open space on these long roads, and and you can tell it's a helicopter and it's a very sort of like jittery shot. Here, um, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's that like Lynch has discovered filming via drone or or what is happening, but Lynch was like very. You can tell that he's doing some really interesting stuff with the kind of semi-aerial photography here like where it's these really like beautiful static kind of but also slightly moving shots um you also get like a moment later um 
I just think as Dougie is driving up, the camera sort of inexplicably rises straight up, like, you know, hundreds of sort of feet up in the air over a road. And then you see Dougie driving on the strip. And then when Dougie arrives, the camera sort of comes back down again in the straight line as Dougie drives up the road. So anyway, there's some really interesting stuff going on here with the cinematography. But yeah. Also seven. I don't know if it's a seven reference or not. I, I am I'm totally confused about that. I, <laughs> yeah, so I'm am I. not sure or not. I don't know. I, I think it's sort of hard to think that anyone could think they're setting up that scene and not think it's a seven reference. Like, I mean, it's so obvious. It's so direct. But I I also don't really think Lynch thinks like that. So I don't know. Yeah. The- yeah. It, it would be it would be kind of funny if like of all the artworks we've mentioned since we started this podcast, neither Lynch nor Frost has seen any of them. <laughs> It's true. Uh, Did you have thoughts on the whole seven thing? Not on the seven thing, but I was just going to say, it does seem like the one director who he's consciously referencing over and over is Kubrick. And I kind of felt that with the, um, I mean, it's done in a totally different manner, but those shots down the hallway after uh, Amanda Seyfried shoots into the door. Yes. um, It just kind of reminded me that he's been doing those shots, I think, since... um, the first instance I can think of is maybe the season two premiere of Twin Peaks when they're in the hospital and Renette wakes yes. up. And ever since then, he's used it in very different – it's always done differently, like a different speed, different kind of lighting and everything. But Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, Inland Empire, he loves those shots of going down the hallway. Um, but also, you know, at last episode pointed out, very clockwork orange with the uh sylvia when when richard basically runs in and assaults sylvia and johnny's on the floor and yeah. the teddy bear speaking and then obviously all the 2001 doctor strange love stuff in uh in that what was that the part eight and stuff part so eight, it is yeah. interesting that yeah. he's like it's almost like well if i'm gonna do a, a film references i'm gonna go with like the most obvious ones possible but i know he is a big uh Kubrick admirer and apparently Kubrick was a big admirer of his I think he brought um when he was like shooting The Shining uh George Lucas and and Dwayne Dunham who was editing for Lucas at the time were like on the set of uh Empire Strikes Back and Kubrick was like oh hey uh you guys want to come over tonight I'm gonna screen my favorite movie so they were like okay they went over to his house and he screened Eraserhead which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, uh, now I'm imagining Lynch as the as the the friendly janitor in The Shining. <laughs> you you've got the gift. <laughs> I've got it too. Um. Yeah, we we haven't even talked about uh, Cole as a, like a presence here. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to like David Lynch's performance in this episode because he nails all of it. He's so great. The he's dead line and the dirty bearded men in a room line, both classic Cole, classic Lynch. Um. But I we, we kind of got off track from your uh, from your cherry pie prompt there, Simon. Uh, should, should we talk about cherry pie? The, the, I have to say that when I was seeing people theorize that, oh wow, Cooper's finally awake. The thing they really responded to was the way he reacts to two things in that closing sequence. One is of course pie, mm-hmm. um, but although I don't think that really means anything because you know we've seen him voraciously devour coffee and seeing him voraciously devour pie, I don't think changes anything. Um, I've also seen it claimed that, you know, when, I, I don't know who's playing the pianist cause it wasn't credited, but it doesn't appear to be Battle of Menti. It's not Battle of Menti. Um, I was going to say not old enough, I don't think. Um, but, um, you know, when that note gets played and, and the, and the track pivots to that sadder tune that is very much like, uh, many current sort of Twin Peaks themes, I've seen it claimed that 
he's playing a D of some kind, and that that's the same tone you get. Uh, that's like the Josie tone or whatever it is that we're getting over at the uh, oh. over at the hotel. But I can't prove it, and I'm not about to go back and queue up both episodes of that moment at the same time to figure it out. <laughs> so I'm going to assume that someone else has done the work or has perfect pitch and just knows how to hear these things. Um, yeah, I find it funny that like there is such a. I mean, I guess I understand why, but I, I do find it funny that there is such a tendency among people watching the show to kind of always want to turn every little thing that Dougie does into like this cut and dry binary of like he's either asleep or he's awake i mean it i I find it frustrating because i'm like dougie is awake like dougie is a is a person dougie is a presence he just isn't the exact presence that you want him to be i mean i i think like i I was going to mention this earlier joel when you were talking about dougie i appreciate that like in your writing you've been very much sort of defending like explaining to people why maybe it's worth giving the Dougie stuff a second chance, like think about it a little more openly than, than just he's not Cooper and therefore it's bad. Um, because I really don't think it's that simple. I mean, I, I love this idea that like that, that Cooper's return to the world is again, being doled out in these very small things and that we're probably never going to get Cooper back exactly as he was. I I think I, maybe again, this was Emily, Emily Stevens writing for the AV club this week, but like her talking about this idea that, um, yeah, that, 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 the Cooper character is never going to be the man that he was 25 years ago. And you know what? That would have been the same, even if he hadn't have spent 27 years in the, in the lodge. Like it's just a more extreme version of that. Like time is the thing that has changed this person. You know, it's not just some mystical force that's going to be lifted. He probably is never going to be the same. I mean, I I appreciate that the show is sort of really taking that head on. I don't know. Well, and it's funny that, you know, we call him Dougie. We basically all universally call him Dougie because everyone else calls him Dougie, but he's not Dougie. Like, yeah. you know, Dougie's, Dougie's a golden marble in the lodge, right? <laughs> like, like poor Dougie's gone. It's, but it, it's, I mean, clearly it's not really Cooper either, or it's a, it's, it's a dramatically changed Cooper, but it's funny that, that it's funny how much everyone else's perception of the character colors are is that we're all perfectly happy to call him Dougie when we know damn well he isn't. Yeah. I think at this point, um, I don't, I mean, I don't think he's going to s- or should snap out of it per se. Um, but I don't even know what could do that. Like the only, I mean, I think something to do with Laura and something to do with shoes on a visual level could kind of change what and how he's experiencing communicating. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's, I think we've passed the point where it's possible. He's just going to suddenly like wake up. And if he did, that would be like so lame. Like, I wouldn't, it would just be like, (laughs) really? That's it? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. It is noteworthy that, I mean, he hasn't, he still has not seen or run into any, anyone that Cooper knew. That's true. Yeah. And that's sort of a big deal. And you would think, I mean, the most obvious candidate would, of course, be Audrey, but you know. Yeah. Who knows? (laughs) They may have just, they they may have just paid her a lot of money to show up in the promos, to be honest. Did she? She didn't even show up (laughs) in the promos though, right? Oh, well, the she was in the Vanity the, Fair yeah. thing. But not in the trailers, right? Like, we haven't seen Audrey, because no, no. we've seen Big Ed in the trailer. Um, yes, yeah. we've never yeah. seen Audrey. They're really, they've got something up their sleeve with her, and I'm kind of wondering what it's going to be. I, I'm I'm wondering if there's some sort of, like, um, some sort of uh, Catherine Martell-esque disguise we've been missing this <laughs> entire time. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And it's just a lot better this time. She's the screaming lady in the car with the sick kid. 
<laughs> that is amazing. Yes, I, I actually that one's great. I was gonna say candy, but I, I yeah. like Screaming Lady and Cars even better. Um, I, I the thing that I have heard most frequently about Audrey as a possibility is that she's still in a coma. Yeah. That like Audrey is is still under, and this is why we haven't seen her. Which I there could that could be interesting. I mean, I don't know. I I, I feel like because the show is no longer engaging with like soap operas in the same kind of way, it would be very difficult for them to get out of having her in a coma. So I'm not sure that'll be true. But but I don't know. We'll yeah. see. Mm-hmm. I mean, even for a soap opera, it kind of beggars belief. Like, is is there ever a, a case in human history where someone's like, you know? given birth to a child and then like kept on comaing for another 25 years i was actually like... gonna google that the other night because i like if it's <laughs> if it's even like a real thing because it's like and i did i think i did find something where somebody where they were able to deliver you know deliver the baby and yeah have but a baby. she remained in a coma or something so it's like okay so it is wow okay well there's me yeah told. don't quote me on that because that might i might have be misremembering but like yeah because i was wondering is that how she's going to show up? Like, it almost feels like they're headed in that direction, but I, I don't think they are. I think we'll see her um, conscious and, and moving around, but it, it's going to be it's going to be dramatic, whatever it is, because it's going to have to do with Richard, I assume. He's going to be the one who brings us to her. And I'm kind of hoping, like, I get that every time we see him, it's extreme and it's violent and it's this and that. But even just dramatically, like aside from what you wish for the characters, just dramatically speaking, I feel like it would be much more interesting to have her be the one character that he's kind of timid, I guess, other than Red. He was a little timid around Red, but like the one, like certainly the one woman that he's kind of like abashed around, like, you know, he wants her approval mm-hmm. or something. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's they'll probably do something more, even more interesting than that, but however she comes into it, I feel like it's going to be that kind of dynamic somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if I recall correctly, Julie, you had some general uh, sort of points of discussion you wanted to bring up, and I would be remiss if we did not do that before we wrap things up. Sure, yeah. I, I guess I had a couple things. One sort of more broadly cinematic, and the other more just sort of Lynch, Lynch's uh, filmography and stuff. So maybe we'll, we'll do the Lynch thing first and see if we have time for the other one, but um, I, I was just kind of curious how you guys see this series playing out. I mean, I guess, first of all, how you kind of see Lynch's career as a whole. Do you see like an evolution or certain stages in it and so forth? And how do you think this fits in with those for you? That's a good question. Uh, I feel like I can, I can, I probably am cribbing some of my answer from things I've already written in other places, but I, I don't know. I think the evolution question is a good one because I think um, it's maybe commonplace to sort of say about Lynch that as people on this podcast even have said that he's sort of like can be assumed to be kind of an idiot savant who just sort of has ideas in his head and sort of gets them out. And, you know, and that doesn't really line up with the idea of like an artist who is evolving and changing their practice. It's just, then it's somebody just pushing things out onto the screen, which I don't really think is what's going on with Lynch. I think that's part of the mystique that Lynch uh, like curates about himself. I don't really think that's true all the time. I mean, um, I think he is an artist and I think he works very hard at it and thinks very deeply about it. And I, I think there is absolutely an evolution i mean i think um narratively and like dramatically his stuff has gotten richer over the years i mean i love blue velvet like don't get me wrong i think there's some amazing stuff in blue velvet but in a lot of ways like um 
narratively and dramatically, it is it is somewhat more straightforward than certainly what you're getting in the later years with things like Inland Empire and stuff. I mean, obviously, they're very different texts, but um, I think that's part of it. I also think there's the the differences in the earlier stuff where Lynch maybe tended to focus a little more on male protagonists, uh, whereas in the later part of the career, you have the female protagonists. Um, and they're, they often map out as very different films as well. And I think... In, I think the Twin Peaks here is is doing an interesting job of kind of moving back and forth between those. Like we're almost getting a really um, interesting viewpoint of what it looks like when Lynch is sort of trying to do both things at once in one thing without really a main protagonist. I mean, this the return doesn't really have a main protagonist. I mean, I guess Dougie, yes, but but it's still so diffuse that we keep moving back and forth between the two sides of that. Um, I do think that the one thing I would, the last thing I would say is that like if Lynch maybe moves back and forth between like his more sort of optimistic or that's not, that's even a bit strong, but like his, the, the, the films and the stuff where he, there's maybe like more of a joyful uh, or naive or like enjoyable element to it on the one hand versus the ones that are much darker. Twin Peaks to me, the, the return is much more on the kind of dark side. I think like he's, I don't know. Yeah. That's um, my general answer. <laughs> I, I tend to think of it in stages. I don't think they're necessarily like, you know, hard and fast stages. I think there's probably some overlap in there like to me like lost highway is a classic is a classic you know sort of overlappy thing where you you definitely see portends of like what's to come but it's also got like it's it's got a foot in the past as well um but yeah especially in terms of like the the genre film influence but yeah i mean i definitely think of you know the you know, obviously his his early stuff, art film, animations, things like that, sort of the pre-eraser head, up, maybe even up to and including eraser head, you could kind of consider as one thing. Um, the flirtation with sort of outright Hollywood with, um, you know, Elephant Man and Dune it kind of feels like a whole separate thing, even though, again, there's with especially with the um, the prologue of Elephant Man, you can you can draw a line to eraser head. Um, I'll be honest. I couldn't get through Dune. It's the only Lynch film <laughs> I haven't watched in its entirety. I don't care if that makes me a bad fan. It's not good. I'm sorry. It's just not. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and then you can kind of, I don't want to drone on about this forever, but it kind of, to me, it kind of goes like that where it's, you know, several steps forward and, or, you know, into the next thing while also, you know, retaining certain elements of what came before um, up to, you know, the, I would say, you know, starting with, I would even say, like, starting with the straight story, which I recently watched and is completely brilliant, um, which, I, yeah, which I would consider, like, straight story onwards, his DJF period, um, where he just really, he, he follows his muse, he he get he takes a giant blow-up picture of Laura Dern and a cow out to the Oscar trail, you know, like, he's, <laughs> he is just living his dream at this point. Um, maybe that's a simplistic reading, but it, it, it does feel like, um, as much as Lynch says he doesn't he doesn't care what people think of his movie, thinks of his movies or like that he's not someone who necessarily pays attention to um, critics so much or like, or fans or whatever. He does seem to be someone, he does seem to be someone who responds to um, realities of production and realities of, you know, how productions have gone and how much control he wants. And he, he maneuvered himself over the last 15 years mm. to somewhere where he can, when he works, it's on his terms. Yeah. And um, that that seems to me to be like a natural evolution from each prior stage. Yeah, good point. 
Um, how, how are you feeling about that, uh, Joel? Do you have a sense of like how you think it fits in with his larger oeuvre? It's, it's definitely changing it for me because before the return was announced, I kind of wrote about his whole his whole career, kind of each film individually, and then how it all added up. And I see, I think both of you pointed out really well, like different sort of stages and periods and how he's evolved. I think for me, fundamentally. Um, there's sort of these two, I, I could almost say two stages, and I see Twin Peaks as the pivot between them. And what surprised me is the return in many ways does feel, it feels like it builds on that second stage, but it also feels like it goes back to the first stage in a lot of ways. Some ways that I, I wouldn't say good or bad necessarily, but some ways that I like more than others. Um, I think parts of it feel very eraser head, parts of it, um, have kind of that blue velvet vibe certainly in a way this is almost so far anyways uh, i should take that back i was going to say his most straightforward storytelling but that it's quite there's a lot of stuff in there that's not straightforward storytelling at all there's been some curveballs yeah there's been a few i guess maybe the bulk of it feels like you know kind of a, a little bit of a throwback to certainly pre-inland empire um one thing that intrigues me and i don't have an answer on it is the extent, I think you guys addressed this a few weeks ago, but the extent to which his collaboration, um, both personal and creative, because they lived together for 15 years, but with Mary Sweeney was. Because when you look at what he worked with on her, it's very distinct from the rest of, of his filmography. Because the first thing she edited mm -hmm. for him was the killer's reveal on Twin Peaks. That was the only episode of Twin Peaks she ever edited. Um, and then she did Firewalk huh. with me, uh, Lost Highway, and then she wrote the straight story. That was actually her screenplay that he had nothing to do mm -hmm. with, and she showed yeah. it to him, and he was like, "Oh, I really want to direct this." Um, so that was kind of, you know. And then Mulholland Drive, she edited, and then by Inland Empire, he was kind of, I think th that he actually edited himself. Um, but even that feels like it has kind of a little bit of an overlay or a. a um, flavor left over from that period of, of killer's reveal through Mulholland drive type of work. And so what I'm not seeing in the return is a lot of the stuff that was really prominent there. I think that, that really strong emotional psychological core, um, it it's there in an interesting way with Dougie, but like a very pointedly indirect way. Um, there's certainly nothing mm -hmm. like with, with Laura Palmer with like the Diane Selwyn part of Mulholland drive at the end where you're just like with this character and their trauma and you're going through it. Um, and the style is also a little there's certainly some stuff that's, there's a lot of really cool stuff that he's doing with the, uh, the editing as I loved the purple room thing where it was that stuttering kind of editing. I haven't seen too much that has that kind of fluid and what I would call kind of the fluid impressionistic feel of like a lost highway or Mulholland drive where it's, it's almost kind of like swooning feeling. Uh, it's a little more dry almost than that. Detached? Yeah, a little detached maybe? for sure. A little sort of straightforward. It, it feels more like the stuff Dwayne Dunham edited for him, like the Twin Peaks pilot or Blue Velvet. Um, even in its crazier moments, maybe a little more like Wild at Heart, which still, I think, has that, that free-flowing feeling, but it's not quite as dreamy as that later stuff. Um, so that's kind of what I haven't seen as much, and I'm wondering if it's coincidence, if he's just at a different place, or if there really was something in that, you know, which really, next to Battle of Mente, is probably his longest creative collaboration, was with Mary Sweeney as editor and producer and stuff like that. 
So, so that that intrigues me, but I don't have any answers on it. I had, I hadn't really thought. That's interesting. I've never um, like I, I think I've heard people sort of talk about Mary Sweeney very much in relation to him. I hadn't really thought enough to actually look at like what she had worked with him on in such a concrete way and like track track this kind of evolution with her. Um, it's that's really fascinating. I, I did not know that she edited. Uh, the Killers Reveal episode, Lonely Souls, uh, and then all of these films, Fire Walk With Me, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Street Story. I didn't know that, but I am always very gratified when uh, people point out the contributions that editors make uh, in in these kinds of scenarios, yeah. particularly because uh, women tend to... Like, they're one of the few places in Hollywood where I think women tend to be, like, not as well represented as they should be, but better represented than they are in, like, directorial positions is in things like editing. And it's, there's something to be said for the fact that editors are not talked about as, like, creative mm -hmm. um, elements in, in relation yeah. to that. But I think it's, that's fantastic. There's another element to it, too, because they were together. They weren't, they married at the very end yeah. of their relationship, but they were a couple for all those years. And you kind of have, it reminds me a bit of you have figures like Alma Hitchcock, who was very much his creative collaborator. Doesn't really get credit for it, maybe more so now. But, um, you know, she was there with him in the in the formation of a lot of this stuff. And um, it's interesting when you read, I think it's in Brad Duke's Reflections books, Mary Sweeney says, you know, we really bonded over the cross-cutting between the, um, the, the, Leland killing Maddie and then the roadhouse where everybody's grieving and the music's playing. So huh. there was obviously this, you know, creative and personal connection kind of forged around the same time. Um, and then you get all of these films coming out and, you know, who knows how much of it is direct, indirect or what, but it's, it's just a really interesting sort of unexplored, I feel part of his, his work. So his work, I'll yeah. be curious is, to see if some I, of that comes out in the return as well, or if it ends up, we look back and we say, well, this was great, but it's sort of a post uh, Mary Sweeney work or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if there's like any, if there's like been a book or any other like serious like film scholarship ever written about these sort of like editor partner relationships, mm -hmm. um, these sort of like loaded subordinate, but n maybe not entirely subordinate sort of creative personal. Um, <laughs> I mean, the fact that I mean, just the word cross-cutting took on so many so many meanings in that sentence um, when you were saying when you were talking about um, that sequence yeah. in the relationship, Joel. I'm just wondering if if anyone's ever like written. There's, it it's seems like question, there's a book yeah. here, and not just it about them, but like Hitchcock. And there's got to be others. There yeah. well, there's a, there's Thelma Thelma Schoon, Schoonmaker, yeah. I think. At least since she started working with him, I don't think I think she makes a point of never cutting for anybody else. It's like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Right. Plus Tarantino's longtime editor before she passed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and and historically, just so people, I'll throw my some film history knowledge out there for for nerds who are interested. I mean, part of the reason why women. Uh, have historically had kind of a relationship to editing uh, is the fact that originally it was considered um, basically like just sort of menial labor uh, in the kind of like filmmaking world. And so effect it basically just involved women like literally cutting things up and like attaching them to each other. So it was this was sort of how women were able to make their way into that kind right. of um, plus Plus track, you've got those yeah. small dainty fingers we love so much. <laughs> That's that's right. We don't mind if you get the glue fumes knock you out or something exactly. horrible. <laughs> um, anyway, I think you're right, Simon. That is a book, and then somebody should write it because that is very exciting. Um, but I, I anyway, I, I think this is really fantastic, Joel. I really like this idea of kind of looking at the the Sweeney stuff in relation to both this idea of a kind of 
a dreamier quality maybe that, that tends to map onto, um, yeah, these sort of unusual editing things. I mean, most famously. And, and uh, for people who remember our like questions episode from a couple of weeks ago, Joel had sent in a question about Mulholland Drive in relation to this sort of dreamy uh, structure of Mulholland Drive that we forgot to include, but we can try to talk about it a little bit here maybe. Um, but is, yeah, again, this idea that Mulholland Drive sort of has that structure and then maybe the new Twin Peaks doesn't so much. And I, I actually think that's really interesting. And I kind of wanted to ask you, Joel, because I know that you, like in the in the kind of critical circles, people tend to mention your contribution to so much of the Twin Peaks stuff in terms of you giving really rightful due to Mark Frost as like a presence in Twin Peaks, which I will admit totally, Simon and I are not always like so great about that. Neither, neither of us like know his work really outside of Twin Peaks very much. And so we're just not sort of that um, good maybe about giving him full due all the time. But for me, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if this tendency to move away from the dreamier elements of Lynch's other work in Twin Peaks is coming out of this tension of him working with Frost. Because like, I, I think, I think most, most famously in the, in the finale episode of season two of Twin Peaks, like when Lynch basically ditches Frost's screenplay, like he ditches like not all of it, but he ditches a lot of it. And you get one of the, the much more kind of like dreamy, unusual sequences in terms of structure. Um, if there isn't, if that isn't maybe being tamped down here because there is this need for them to work together. And Firewalk with me too. I mean, you could almost look yeah, at exactly, Twin Peaks yeah. as a move of, from David Lynch's collaboration with Mark Frost to his collaboration with Mary Sweeney in a way. Uh, it's not that neat because it's, you know, a writer and an editor, totally different things. But, um, you know, there there is that sort of transition from from a stage where he was really in sync with Frost. Like the pilot, to me, even now with the return, the pilot still feels like the point where their two talents meet most perfectly and in sync. Um, and after that, it's always this sort of weird, interesting tug of war, which is what I find interesting. Like, I don't really, I don't find them to be necessarily hugely complimentary i think what's interesting in their collaboration to me is the contradictions and the way that that kind of evokes stuff from both of them you have frost sort of okay well david gave me this stuff now what do i do with this how do i fit this into my understanding and then you have lynch taking things that were more frost's kind of decisions and putting his own stamp on it and so even in the return i see that sometimes even though they're writing everything together head to head it's you still have oh, that sense of like totally. a back and a forth occasionally. Um, I, I thought I, I read that in one of your blog posts recently too. I thought that was a really sharp point about like the last couple of episodes, um, maybe episodes nine and 10, this idea that, that maybe wasn't what felt like it wasn't always working about those episodes is the idea that you move between scenes that feel very much like they're writerly scenes and then into like directorly scenes, like scenes where it's, they're very divergent and it doesn't always work as a whole. I think that that is right. And I think your point that this episode, episode 11 feels very much like they are working together in sync is, 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 I think goes a long way towards yeah. explaining what is special about episode well, one 11. One more thought I just wanted to throw out. I don't want to, yeah, I know you're probably ready to close down pretty soon, but one <laughs> last thought is sort of um, more broadly about directing and everything like that. I, I think also there's an interesting thing going on with this where maybe because it's sort of a more straightforward screenplay, a lot of the time um, Lynch's direction is kind of interesting to me. I think there's points where it's, really striking and vivid certainly um part eight was just gorgeous like start to finish and especially that last that new mexico segment was just like you could frame every every one of those you know peter deming I hope he wins whatever emmy they give for 
for cinematography. But there's also a lot of times where it's a little more sort of plain and straightforward and functional almost. Um, a lot of that, I feel like, where he he still finds a way to present it interestingly, but I feel like actually to a lesser extent than on the original series, maybe because it's digital or for whatever reason, um, it, it feels a little more sort of, I don't want to put it in pejorative terms, but like a little more straightforward. And it actually reminds me sometimes of, of some other directors who I think have really visionary qualities, but they often, it's so hard to articulate, they often um, express them in ways that aren't, like it's not heavy, you know, to use a, a cinephile term, it's not really heavy on obvious like mise-en-scene. It's, it's more, and I'm yeah. thinking specifically like Jacques Rivette, I feel that way a lot of times. Yeah. Um, there's another director, I've only seen one of his films, and it was almost by accident. It was like this obscure film festival in like my hometown that I happened to come across. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I think it's Mariano Linas. He did a film called Historius Extraordinarius, which is four-hour sort of like rambling, shambling narrative. And that has a little of that, the same feel to me. And then I think not so much stylistically, because he does sort of have more striking compositions and stuff. But like, um, here's another one I'm going to slaughter. Api Shapong Wirstakal. Wirstakal. Or as he prefers Wirsethical, to be called, yeah. Joe. Joe. Um, yeah, like there's just, I feel like there's a sort of a trend in, in 21st century cinema, which admittedly I'm not really as familiar with as, as some of the past decades of cinema. But from some of the, the sort of the art cinema I've seen, particularly like outside of, um, outside of America and the U.S., there's this sort of, maybe it's there too but i've noticed it more in other other cinemas there's this like feeling of sort of um with where's ethical is it sort of the idea that like yeah like the mise-en-scene tends towards almost a yeah. realist aesthetic it's like it's it's not it's not crazily lit it's not crazy set designed it's just like it could almost be like a, a fairly straightforward just sort of realist image but the kind of unusual elements come in more in the way yeah. that the structure okay, is there like the atmosphere yeah. the sound yeah, I agree. So I was just kind of wondering if you see any commonality with The Return and some of those other directors where there's a sort of this slowness, but also it's almost like they take what could seem like a screenplay element, like a sort of a wandering narrative with all these different elements, and they make it like a somehow a visual cinematic element in like a really subtle way I can't put my finger on. I think Rivette is the king of that, um, but mm. I don't know if you saw any, any kind of stuff there <laughs> um I, that's an interesting question i mean i think i don't know enough about what a pitch pong's process is with writing i think he I, i'm pretty sure he writes just mm -hmm. his own stuff um by the way anybody who's listening you should 100 percent go find every a pitch pong film you can possibly find like they're all really amazing uh cemetery of splendor is relatively available so is uncle boon me who can recall his past lives all of them are great um but I, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think with Rivette, like Rivette is interesting because his work was so yeah. uh, improvisational based, like so much of it would come out of the, the actors and what they were doing and saying. Um, but I, I do, I do very much take your point that I think Twin Peaks uh, particularly 
puts an interesting kind of angle on Lynch's process and work in the sense that Lynch, it, it feels often like, even though Lynch is participating in the writing process, Lynch is sort of being given a written framework that he then has to kind of almost adapt yeah. or like build into a visual structure rather than what he was doing in something like Inland Empire where he was yeah. basically writing, he was writing the script to the process of the filmmaking. So it was a much more kind of improvisatory thing versus what is going on in the structure with Frost. So yeah, yeah totally I don't know. different way in empire feels like really rivetian and actually i think i yes, tweeted yeah. this at you guys but the missing pieces from uh inland empire like more things that happened that to me feels like the missing link between like jock rivet and and david lynch um just because it's oh totally it's yeah that's chunks of the scenes like it's not cut the way inland empire is cut it's it's sort of cut the way actually the missing pieces are cut like just sort of long sustained shots of strange things happening and you just kind of uh, marinate in the moment, you know. The the scene with the two with the sheriff fighting Chet Desmond uh, for like forty five minutes is so rivet. It's not even funny. Only Just a slight bo- exaggeration. Bodies like punching each other and like rolling around in an un an unedited cut, basically for a Good really point. long time. Yeah. Very 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 rivet. <laughs> um, I know. Sorry, Simon. Did you have stuff you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, only that uh, we should be wrapping up because we have gone slightly <laughs> long. Um, but, uh, thank you, yeah, Joel, thank you so guys. much for joining that us. Great. Um, it was, wasn't it? Uh, I feel like if, if Simon didn't make us stop right now, I, I suspect that Joel and I could just, I, yeah, that's sort of what I could say. You should have uh, Dennis Lim on at some point to talk about Lynch and Rivette. Cause he oh. did that whole series, which was like, dude, we've been trying for me. I went, I, I lived in, actually I live in California at the time, but I was visiting the Northeast and I like just made this whole trip to new york for like a week just to see that because i was like you've got to be kidding me like lynch and revet and 35 millimeter yes please <laughs> dennis is the most wonderful human i he's such a friendly lovely person and i really just want to have him on just to hear mm. what he thinks about the show but again i know yeah. he's so busy this summer he like works like a crazy person i'm not even sure he's caught up on the show which is crazy because he literally wrote right. the book on <laughs> david lynch and he still doesn't have time to watch the show um, but I will, I will maybe try to ask him again one more yeah, time. We'll just, see. <laughs> just for, just for the record, even after this ends, if I get the impression that Dennis Lim's got a window, we might just come oh, back totally for a Dennis Lim yeah. episode. <laughs> That'd be great. We would totally do that. Anyway. Uh, All right. So, so uh, as always do consider rating, reviewing the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is that you hear the show. Uh, huge, huge help. Um, it has not gotten less crowded out there. Let me tell you. And, um, yeah, do visit SortedCinema.com where you can stream this episode. And uh, thank you all for listening. We will be back in roughly a week's time. And thank you again to Joel. Thank you, thank Thank you. Thank you, guys.